Uh, well, thank you again, worship team. So good to be back with you and worshiping with you and uh, being led in worship by some great people with some great talent uh, and willing to use it for, for our benefit and for, for God's praise. So thank you guys for what you do. Um, mulching this weekend, how many of you? You can't raise your arm because you're tired, I can tell. All right, hey, I got that done as well. Uh, some of you already have gotten that done. Well done to you. Thank you for making it here this morning on this Memorial Day weekend Sunday. And uh, we are excited this morning to start a new series with you, which I will tell you more about in a moment. And I want to introduce it to you this way by telling you an old woodsman's proverb. All right, an old woodsman's proverb that you have probably heard is this. A tree is best measured when it's down. You ever hear that? Tree is best measured when it's down. True, right? How tall is that tree over there? How tall is that tree over there? It's easier to measure that when you cut it down. And the principle carries over in a hurry to life, isn't it? A life is best measured when it's down, isn't it? The measure of a life is rarely in what you do while you're still alive, but is most often measured and best measured when your life is down. At the end of it, when there's no more mistakes to make, no more choices that will lead you somewhere else, no more whatever, that people can then look at the finished product and measure it. Because a tree is best measured when it's down, right? In this series that we're in, excuse me, called uh, Tattered Life, Timeless Legacy, we are going to look at the life of a man whose life <clears throat> and tree is now down, we're going to look at the, the life of King David of Israel, and we're going to look at his life to try to measure what we can about two people. Number one, about him and humanity and what we can learn from him, but number two, about his God. David was a man full of, of irony, full of um, uh, ironic balances. David was a man who um, has such a strong reputation that everybody in here, I would bet, knows somebody named David. Raise your hand if you know no one living right now named David. How many of you in here are lying right now? No, I'm just kidding. How many of you in here know someone living named Saul right now? Right? There are not many of us but some. David's life is so strong and it's, his reputation is so powerful that we consider the name David even now to be a, a strong name. Why? Because of him. Because of him. Because of nothing else but, but him. And imagine that being your legacy, that people name their children after you because your reputation, your character, your measurement is so profound. That's the life of David. But David's story is interesting. David shows us a man of deep character and deep sin who served a God of deeper grace. See, David's life, if you know anything about it, is not perfect. It, in fact, it's far from perfect. But he is a man of deep character. He is a man that should be modeled after. His choices were profound in some cases. But we also need to be honest about David. He's a man of deep sin that would have derailed most of us, if not all of us, in our careers and our life. He is a man who committed adultery. All right? That means he slept with another man's wife. Okay, how many of you who, who know people who have done that, those men are still successful in the profession in which they are in, or are still honored and revered in the profession that they are in? This is King David. And he goes further, and then he has this woman's husband killed. How many murderers do you know who are honored and revered and who are looked up to as great men of God? 
And then to make things even worse, David has a, a, a bunch of children, and he becomes a very, very passive father. In fact, there are things going on with his children that he does not know anything about. And we can all relate to that to some degree, but not to the degree in which David does. He becomes a passive father, kind of dealing with the effects of his own sin. Now, how many men that you know who are passive fathers and who are absent and checked out do you look at and say, man, I can't wait to name my kid after them? And so what gives with David? A man of great character, yes. A man of great sin and failure, yes. And this is the irony of the life of David because what draws all this together is not just that he was smart, wise, strong, or handsome. What draws all this together is that even though he was a man of deep character and deep sin, he served a God of deeper grace. That is is what weaves his life together. That is what pulls his tattered life to become a timeless legacy. Now here's what we know about a life. If a life is best measured when it's down, the question is what do we measure a life on? For almost all of us, we have pursuits, goals, aims in life that we get after, whether it's making a certain amount of money or, or living in a certain kind of house or marrying a certain kind of person. That if we're honest with ourselves, that often what we measure the success of our life by are things that are very measurable. And here's what we're going to see this morning as we just get into the life of David. That the best measure of a life is to measure the immeasurables. And you know this is true. That the best measure of a life is to measure the immeasurables. That, that as you think about the funerals that you have been at, how many funerals have you ever been at? where the pastor or family member sharing family gatherings or family greetings has said, you know what, they made, they made a million dollars by the time they were 30. It's amazing what they were able to do. How many of you have ever been at a funeral where they said, you know what, we're so grateful to have known them. They went on so many great vacations that were awesome. And they went to, you know, here, they went here, they went here, they went here. You know, they lived such a great life. They lived in a real nice house. You know, they had X number of square feet. They had, a, they had you know, this Thing and this thing. You know, how many of you have ever been to a funeral where a tree has been measured, a life has been measured by the measurables? None of us. Why? Because it would be an offense to the life of the person. The life, and we know it, is best measured by all the immeasurables that come. The kindness, the character, the faith, the intangibles, the immeasurables of a life. And this morning in the life of David, we're going to see this principle at play. And here's a question that you're asking, because I know you're going to ask, I can see it on your face right now, you're asking this. If this is true, that a life is measured by the immeasurables, how can I increase my immeasurables? It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that question. That's a very profound insight that you have right there. How can I intentionally increase my immeasurables. If a life is measured by the immeasurables, what can I do to get after that? Not just the measurable things, not just more money, not just the bigger house or the better car or, or looking better with my clothing or whatever it is, not just that, but if a life is measured by the immeasurables, how do I get after the immeasurables in my life? An excellent, excellent question. And you have found yourself in the right place to answer that this morning. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there with me to the Old Testament. Just kind of dust that off as you go through your Bible or if you have your phone or your tablet or whatever that you're on to find it. We're going to go to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, that little hint comes before 
Second Samuel, you're welcome on that. Yeah, uh-huh, you're welcome. Okay, that's the ninth book in the Old Testament. Uh, you can find it in the table of contents uh, fairly easily. It's a fairly large book. First Samuel chapter uh, 16 is where we will find ourselves. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew right around you. That's our gift to you. Uh, we'd be glad to give that to you, let you have it, and take it home with you this morning. All right. So First Samuel 16, I want to share a little bit of background to this story uh, and then tell you the story um, that's happening because it's a really uh, neat story. Uh, you may know in the, um, the history of Israel at this point, there is a king right now, right now meaning 1 Samuel 16. Right now, if you're in Israel, your king is Saul. And Saul was chosen because the people of Israel were angry with God or disappointed and wanted what the other nations had. And God gave them a king that looked really good. And he was chosen by the people and God signed off on it. He said, this is fine, let the people have what they would like. And, and Saul became the king. Now you should also know this, well you do because you're, you're there right now, if you're in ancient Israel, you know that, that Saul has already kind of blown it. And you are living in a time of nationwide chaos. If you can imagine um, President Obama uh, making very controversial decisions and actually having more power than he does now, not having the checks and balances of the um, legislative and judicial branches of our government, but having greater and stronger executive level powers that he does now. Imagine that there were very few checks and balances for him, and imagine that he kind of went off the rails. Imagine the, the discomfort we would feel as a nation with a leader who's doing things that shows that he's kind of going a little mad. This doesn't make sense. He's, he's kind of putting us at risk as a people. And this is what Saul is doing. He is not following the Lord fully. He is, he is um, acting like a priest when he has no business acting like a priest. He is getting reproved or rebuked by Samuel, who is the other key religious leader, spiritual leader right now. Samuel is like the key man, the Levitical judge who can handle all spiritual matters in the country right now. And Samuel is against Saul. And if you're in the inner circle, you already know this. That by 1 Samuel 16, God has already said to Saul, I am done with you. You will no longer remain king. The time is running out on you. And Samuel has now walked away from Saul in, in chapter 15. And they, they are not on speaking terms anymore. And in fact, Samuel will not see Saul until Saul commits suicide at the end of his life. So you're living in a time of national turmoil and uncertainty. And Saul is no longer our great savior and king. We're now a little bit worried about what will happen. And after Samuel gets the news from God that, that he is no longer pleased with Saul and he's done with him, Samuel begins to mourn. And he begins to react to that internally and emotionally because he was the one who anointed Saul with oil to be king in the first place. He's the one who is the... The, the anointer in, in this, uh, this time. And so Samuel, we pick up the story here in chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord says to Samuel in chapter 16, verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Okay. In other words, Samuel, hey, 
Enough with the mourning, enough with your head down, enough with the sorrow, it is time to move on. I have rejected him, I'm not shedding tears over this, it is time to move. Get your horn of oil, you're the king anointer in this place, and go to Jesse, son of Bethlehem, or Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint the next king. Chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel's like, I can't just go, because if I go, Saul's going to say, what in the world are you doing? Imagine, if you will, in our world, uh, the Secretary of State uh, traveling unannounced and unapproved and unscheduled trip to whatever, North Korea, just to make it interesting for the fun of it, all right? Can you imagine what the president might think? What are you doing? Are you kidding me? You, You didn't approve this. You're going off the grid. Samuel is a high, high, high ranking official, if you will, all right? Influencer in the nation right now. And Samuel just can't make up his own schedule. What he does, people see. And what he does, Saul sees. Saul has already been rejected by God and rejected by Samuel. And now Samuel's going to go to anoint somebody in Bethlehem? I guarantee you Saul is going to look at that with a little bit of a, hmm, what are you doing? And maybe a little bit more than a, hmm, and Samuel knows this. And he knows, if nothing is given to cover me on this trip, I will be killed if I follow you, God. Samuel has the ability, because he's a Levitical judge, to be able to offer a heifer all right, as a sacrifice in a rural town for any unsolved murder mysteries. All right? If you're a CSI person or like to read uh, those kind of books, if there's any unsolved murder, um, Samuel, as a Levitical judge, has the authority, biblically, to come and offer a sacrifice in that town for the, as an atonement for the blood that was shed. And so this is what God gives to him as his cover. You're going to go to Bethlehem and you're going to use that capacity that you have to cover your trip. And so he says there in the end of verse 2, the Lord said, take this heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And that would be the reason, the explanation for the trip. So no more questions would be asked and Saul would look at it and say, oh, someone, he's just doing his normal job. Verse 3, Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are anoint, to anoint for me the one I indicate. Now, I don't know if you're someone who likes to know the plan. If you like to know what you're doing, Samuel doesn't know the plan yet. He knows that one of these sons will be anointed, but he doesn't know which one. And that can be a little disconcerting, and we'll see that as Samuel gets into his situation. So verse 4, Samuel did... What the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him because the nation is in turmoil. And I'm telling you, if the nation is in turmoil and you have a high ranking government official come to your door, you think something is wrong. And this could be very bad. I don't want to see you right now. The people were afraid. And they asked the question Do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? They were afraid, all right? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. And you should know this about Samuel, that he, he was, he's so forward and so strong as a man. Um, when Saul didn't do his job and he captured King Agag in chapter 15, I believe it is, he captured a king that he was supposed to kill. This king was brought before Samuel, and Samuel said to him when he met Saul, Saul, why have you not done all that I'm spo- you were supposed to do in eliminating these people? And, Sam- and Saul said, well... Sorry. Samuel said, bring me the king. And King Agag came into Samuel's presence. 
with, with the scriptures telling us that King Agag thought that the day of his death had passed. In other words, he thought that he was safe and free. Samuel said, give me your sword. And he took the sword and on the spot he kills King Agag. This is Samuel. We're not talking Billy Graham here, okay? We're talking Samuel. He just killed a king and he comes to your town. All right? And so the people are like, do you come in peace? Yeah, fair question. I don't know. Does he come in peace? And so he comes in peace and he says, yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. This whole event, um, this consecration involves getting uh, clean, you know, taking a, a ceremonial bath, changing the clean clothes, abstaining from sexual contact, abstaining from certain kinds of food, and just being in a state of uh, cleanliness from inside out as much as you can. So a big deal. This doesn't happen in five minutes. This is a, we're preparing for this moment and it is not clear exactly what the end game is. Why are you here to consecrate what? Who? For what end? It's not clear, and Samuel doesn't say. So when they arrived, and this is Jesse's family, and his sons arrived, you can imagine what it would be like to be one of Jesse's sons or to be in the family and to think what Jesse is thinking, like, wow. Yesterday I had no idea that this was going to happen. Today, here we are. Samuel is here. Our family is being consecrated. Wow. Big deal. So they come. When they arrived, verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. Now, Samuel's thinking this in his mind. It's important to see. He hasn't said that. You see that word? He thought in his mind. So he's thinking in this moment, like, "Mm mm-hmm, this guy must be the one. Because, again, he doesn't know. God didn't tell him which of the sons it would be. So he sees him, and he's like, this, he looks good. I, yeah, I, could, I could see him being king. So he's thinking, yeah, this guy might be the right one. But the Lord said to Samuel, and again, this is like an internal conversation, like, I think he's a good one. God's like, no, I don't think so, Samuel. I think he, I don't think. This is all internal. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at, and then he makes a statement that many of you know, and if you don't know it, this is very important for you to have and to own and to process. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is where this comes from, this context, that Samuel, this godly leader of the nation of Israel, whom God is pleased with, looks at someone and he's like, he looks good, he looks the part, he looks right. And and God says to him, hey, Thank you for sharing your opinion with me, but just so you know, a life is measured by the immeasurables. Not by what kind of clothes he's wearing, not by how much body fat he has, not by whether he has a tan line or not, not by the size of his nose or what his eyes are doing or his smile, not by anything that you would measure yourself against when you look in the mirror at yourself and wish there was something different about you. The life is measured by the immeasurables. Not by what you so want to change. And if I could say something particularly to our our young girls, our young ladies in particular, not that young men don't stare in the mirror, but ladies tend to spend maybe a little bit more time in their life in the mirror. Maybe it has to do with having hair. I don't know what that's about. If there's one thing I could encourage you to do is to take this verse, even just the last phrase of this verse, and put it right on the bottom of that mirror as you look at yourself and you see over and over and over again the things that you wish were different about your face. 
about your body. Because literally the Hebrew here says man looks at the face or the eyes and judges. But God looks at the heart. And so as you look at yourself in the mirror, see the truth from God that a life is measured by the immeasurables. Not just by what you see looking back at you in that mirror. Even Samuel got that wrong. Even Samuel got that wrong. So God says to Samuel, hey, he's not the one. Looks great. But he's not the one. The next son comes up. Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Imagine Samuel, again, not knowing the plan. I don't know who this is going to be. Verse 9, Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. At this point, I'm sure Jesse's wondering, what are we doing? Like, what game are we playing? I've had three people go by. I don't even know what you're here to do. Okay, so Jesse then, verse 10, had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Imagine that over and over. No, not this one. you have any more? Not this one. Not this one. Not this one. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And can you imagine in that moment the confusion that Samuel would have? Like all the boys in the room are done. He just told Jesse, bring all of your sons, and all the sons just walk before him. And he's like, God, did, you, did I get the right Jesse? Like are there two Jesses in Bethlehem? Did I go to the wrong one? Because these sons are here and you said none of them. And so he asks the question, do you have anybody else? Like, did you adopt a son somewhere? Do you have like a son who's actually a cousin or a nephew that you just call? I mean, is there anybody else at all? And Jesse's like, um, yeah, you know, I do have another son. Actually, come to think of it, I do. And I mean, I didn't think it was important enough that he be here. In fact, I thought he could miss this. It would be okay with me if he wasn't here. I know you said bring all your sons, but listen, he's, he's the youngest and actually, the Hebrew word can be translated, he's the smallest as well. He's, I'm not going to say it, but he's the least important because he can afford to miss this moment. But if you want me to, I can get him for you. I mean, he's out in the, the field with the sheep. Samuel said, verse 11, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And can you imagine the awkward moments that would pass? You ever been in an awkward family situation? This is not, you know this, right? This is not just text David in the field and tell him to come in. This is someone goes out to the field. Someone else watches the sheep. Then he comes back in, and then he has to get ceremonially clean and go through the process of being consecrated. You know, cleaning up and getting new clothes on. I mean, he's got to do the, the whole deal. We're talking a while. We will not sit down until he arrives. Evidently, they sat down. Because in verse 12... He had him sent and had him brought in, and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, and Samuel went to Ramah. How do you think that went for the brothers? You ever been jealous of your siblings for any reason whatsoever? You ever feel like they got treated unfairly? Maybe they got a, a little bit of a break. So he, here's David in the presence of his older and bigger brothers. He gets anointed 
by Samuel. And you didn't. You always, you're big enough to, you know, you'd wrestle him down. You would, I don't know if you could give wedges in the old times, right? But if you would have, you could have. If you could have, you would have then. I mean, you have, you've owned David before. I mean, when you wrestle, he can't even compete with you. And here he is in front of you and all your brothers being anointed by Samuel. It's amazing. Have you ever felt like it was okay if you weren't a part of the party? Have you ever felt like people really didn't care if you were part of the big event or not? Have you ever felt ostracized? Have you ever felt like other people belong to be there, but I don't? Because this is David's beginning. Being the smallest and the youngest. The one that his own father thought he doesn't even need to be here for this because there's no way that anything meaningful will happen with David here. My other sons can be consecrated, but not him. You ever have that pain from a parent, from someone who should protect you and care for you and love you? This is David's beginning. This is where he starts. The question is, what does he do next? What do you do if you're the youngest son and this moment has just happened to you, where in front of all your brothers and your father, you are anointed, You don't know what for yet. We know because we're reading later on. But Samuel doesn't say what you're anointed to do. In that day and age, the anointing of Samuel is simply an acknowledgement. There's something special. There's something we hope powerful that may come in your life. That your life may mean something through this anointing. But we don't know what for yet. It is not clear here in the text, and we do not believe that at this point David even understood that he was going to be the next king. I guarantee you that if this were clear to him and his brothers, that word would get out. I guarantee you that. And we don't see that word getting out until 1 Samuel 24, years later. And the first person to acknowledge that David will be the next king is Saul himself. In fact, David, even later in his life, before he becomes king, he refers to Saul as God's anointed not the other way around. And so I'm not sure David even knows. In fact, I'm fairly confident David does not know what he's anointed for yet. His brothers don't know what he's anointed for yet, but he's been anointed. And the question is, what do you do? It's a big moment. What are you going to do? And let's look at the text. This is very, very important. What happens next is this. In verse 14, the scene shifts back from this little town in Bethlehem, and the the transition comes into play, and we now see what happens in the, the king's palace in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, an apt transition because the Spirit of the Lord just came on David. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. And so Saul's attendants said to him, and you can see the tension in the, the castle there, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. And one of his servants answered, I've seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp, and he is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David. And then look at this next phrase. This is so important. Send me your son David who is with the sheep. Send me your son David who is with the sheep. You know the one who didn't call a press conference when he was anointed by Samuel? Remember that 
that David, who after that great moment, he went back to doing what he was supposed to do. After that moment when he was right in front of all of his brothers and could have leveraged that moment for his benefit, could have rubbed it in his brothers' faces, he went back to the fields to do the common grunt work of a youngest son. And he remained there with the sheep. Pretty profound insight into the character of David. Who, when given an opportunity, says, you know what? I'm going to be faithful in the little things that I'm doing right now. I don't, I don't know what God's plan is for my life. But until that becomes clearer, I'm going to do the things that are right in front of me. And I'm going to do them well. I'm going to shepherd well. I'm going to protect the sheep well. And if you know the story of David, it is this very training that made him capable of doing the great things. Because here's the principle from the life of David in this, that faithfulness in the small things leads to faithfulness for the big things. That as you and I are faithful in the small things that are right in front of us, it makes us be ready for and faithful for the big things. And you know this is true for you. It's pretty tempting sometimes, if we're honest, to want to live someone else's life and to almost live outside of ours and to say, oh, I'm just going to go to work and get work over with and then I can dream about somebody else and something else. And I can dream about a vacation that only they can go on. And wouldn't it be great if I was more healthy like someone else and I could do all the activities that they do? Uh, I'll live in my little life and I'll kind of dream about that here later on. Wouldn't it be great if I could, and as we compare ourselves to others, we wish for something different or something better in our world. And here's David giving this example of something that was going to be great in his life, an anointing from King Samuel. And the first thing he does is he goes back to work. To do the little thing right in front of him. To be faithful in the little thing right in front of him. Because. Because. A life that is measured, and is measured well, is measured by these immeasurable choices. Not to grasp for things that are not for the grasping yet, but to be faithful in the little things on the day today. And here's what we learn about God in this process. We learn this about David, but in this story we learn this about God. That his grace is deeper than you and I can ever exhaust to reach to a rejected son who wasn't even worth being considered to be brought in and to say, this is the man that I want. It's not on the basis of his ability or his strength or anything like that, but it's because of the strength of God's grace in leading him in this way. It's a question we ask this way. Why would God choose anybody to do anything for him? You ever thought about that? Why would God choose people to lead? When King David led and failed, I have to ask the question, God, why did you choose him and not someone else? Why didn't you choose somebody who wouldn't fail? Why didn't you choose somebody who would have been faithful in that moment of looking at Bathsheba on the, the rooftop there? Why didn't you choose someone who would have been a more active father and a good role model for all of us? Why did you choose someone who you knew would fail? And here's what we learn in the book of 1 Corinthians in, in the New Testament. Paul is writing this, and I want to read it from the message translation because I think it's so helpful here. 
on the matter of why does God choose anyone if he knows failure is coming. And Paul writes, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high, so, high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by without, with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. It's Eugene Peterson's version of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. That God chooses, not on the basis of the ability of the people that he chooses, but in fact because of the weaknesses of the people that he chooses. Because he is a God of tremendous, tremendous grace. Our life is best measured by the immeasurables. We know that in spirit, right? We know that in our mind, that a life is best measured by the immeasurables. And yet, our life can so easily, so easily draw back to say, God, this is what I want. I want to be able to look in the mirror and I want this to be different about me. I want to dress the right way so that when I look in the mirror, I see that I've arrived somewhere. I want to look at my bank account and say that I can measure my success on the basis of my bank account or my 401k. I want to be able to look at my home and say that I've arrived and making a statement with that or with my car or with my hobby that I'm making a statement with that with the measurables. It's so easy to devolve into this and yet we know this is true that a tree is best measured when it's down and at some point for you and for me our life is going to be down. We're all going to stand here. And people will measure us, not by any of the things that we pursue, but people will measure us by the immeasurables, by the condition of our heart. This is why God chose David. Because of his heart and because of his grace. I want to encourage you, if I can do anything else, don't just pursue the measurables. Know that the condition of your heart, the condition of your heart is of what is of interest to God. Be faithful in the little things right in front of you right now. Not longing for someone else's life, not wishing you had something different. Be faithful in the little things as David was. And know that God's grace is deeper than you can ever exhaust. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to study your word, to see the truth of your word. It cuts into our motivations, into our desires, into our hearts in a way that reveals our hidden motivations, reveals our hidden insecurities, and reveals our struggles that we have with life. And I pray that you would give us the courage, you would give us the insight to be faithful in the little things that you have called us to do now. To depend and lean into you as a God of great grace and great strength who calls and leads people from all kinds of obscure backgrounds to make your name known. So Father, we thank you both for your grace and for the opportunity to serve in the little things right in front of us. Give us courage 
to do the things that we know we need to do as our life is measured by all the immeasurables. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.